Hello and welcome to episode 81 of the Corinne Nidja podcast. I'm your host, Corinne Nidja, and this podcast is where I share people's incredible stories of recovery from chronic diseases such as heart disease, type 2 diabetes, rheumatoid arthritis, multiple sclerosis, and so many others are on there. Please go back through and check them all out if you have polycystic ovarian syndrome, endometriosis, Crohn's disease, ulcerative colitis, just tired, constipated, if you're whatever, there is an episode there for you. And if you're someone who's listening and you're like, you haven't covered my thing and I've improved with a whole food plant-based diet, please message me and I will love to have you on the show. So yeah, message me and come on the show. If you have a chronic disease story, please message me on Facebook or message me through the contact page on my website. I would absolutely love to have you on the show if you have an incredible recovery story yourself and you want to share it with everyone because, because the more people hear these stories, the more convincing this way of eating is for people. And that's the you know the whole inspiration for this podcast is to motivate and inspire and give people hope through a whole food plant-based diet that if you've been listening for a while, that we know the science is in. It is the only diet known to rever- prevent and reverse heart disease. It is the only diet that can do st- all the things that we've heard from all the guests that have been on this show for the last 81 episodes with all different kinds of chronic diseases. There is no diet that can match the power of a low-fat, whole-food, plant-based diet. It's the bee's knees and the ants' pants. So please share your story with me and then we can share that with the world because the world needs to know and the world needs to heal themselves and feel amazing because if you feel amazing and people are walking around in healthy, thriving bodies, I doubt there'd be as much suffering, not only from chronic disease, but sick people and sad, depressed, miserable, unhappy, in pain, disease-filled people they're not the one, you know, it's difficult in those bodies to be doing things for other, to be in service to other people, to be in service to the animals, to be in service to the planet when you're exhausted, sick and unhappy. So the more people that we can get to the message of a whole food plant-based diet out there too, and they change their health and they feel amazing, the more people who are out there serving the planet, serving the animals, serving humanity and that's when the world will change for the better. I'm positive. I'm positive. So, I, you know, I love sharing these stories and I'm absolutely a thousand percent committed to continue sharing them for as long as possible into the future because these stories are endless. There are always people coming out and saying that they have benefited from switching their diet to a whole food plant-based diet. So, yes, please help me out. If you have a story that you want to share, message me or send me a message on the contact page of my website. And if you want to support this podcast and you don't have a story, and you're like, how can I help spread the word? Please head over to iTunes, or Apple Podcasts, as it's called today, and leave a five-star rating and a kind review over there for people because that helps this podcast to reach more people and share this podcast everywhere with everyone you know. Be the annoying family member who's like me, who's constantly sharing stories about plant-based recovery and plant-based healing and all the many benefits of a plant-based diet. So share it on social media share it with family and friends over dinner, share it just by talking to people out in the street that you meet. That helps, you know, if you tell people about the podcast and help them find it in Spotify on their phones if they're older or, or less tech savvy. You know, I didn't know how to do it until someone taught me how to do it. 
how to do a podcast, how to find the podcast, and people don't know what a podcast is. So educating people that you meet and say, you know, there is this, po- this thing called a podcast and you can listen to these incredible stories of recovery. Every bit helps. So you don't feel like you have to be a guest on this show to help or you have to be a doctor or an expert. You can help just by passing on this to a sibling or a loved one or talking about whole food plant-based diets with your family over dinner and your kids talking about talking to them about the benefits of whole vegetables, fruits, legumes, whole grains, nuts and seeds. They are all helping me spread this message because this is this is, you know, so 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 important to everyone to feel better. So thank you for everyone who already does that and Thank you so much to this week's guest, who is Dr. Glenn Livingston, and he is a veteran psychologist and author of a really great book that I stumbled across last year. So when his assistant reached out to me to have him on the show, and I learned that he was also whole food plant-based, which I didn't know, my heart exploded and I couldn't wait to have him on the show. Um, I love his book, Never Binge Again. If you haven't read it and you have a problem with food addiction or binge eating, it's a really great book. It's free on Kindle and it's free on his website. And his website is neverbingeagain.com. And there you can get free bonuses. You can click on a red button and get reader bonuses and food plans and templates. And you also get to listen to his free recorded coaching sessions where he works with clients on their food addiction and on the Never Binge Again system that he has created or protocol that he has created. And it is quite, well, it's a little bit controversial and confronting. And it did make my eyes go wide when I first read it because he talks about things in ways that I guess in this love and light self-love society we live in, it, it, it did feel a bit confronting, like he was shaming me or when I was reading it, I'm talking about, or that it was it was triggering and I could see how it was triggering, but he sets the book up beautifully and he talks about how we are. Look, he's going to talk about it all in this interview, but I really love this book because it did trigger me, like it really did. And I felt very confronted as someone who has been a food addict and who has who's still recovering myself and my relationship with food throughout my 39 years as a food addict. And he gave, he gives so much great insights in this. Now, food addiction, you may not even know, but I think most of society are addicted to the foods because they are designed to be addictive in our society. And now we are conditioned to reach for them for every moment. We reach for them for our birthdays, for our tears, for our stresses, for our tiredness. We reach for these high, hyper palatable caloric, dense, sugar, fat, salt, over starch overloads of processed, packaged, boxed products that we shove into our gob and we've been taught to since the minute we come, basically the minute we come out of our mother's womb. You know, we're just fed and fed and fed and overfed and undernourished as the do- documentary itself says. And I think that Glenn's work is so powerful because it kind of cuts through and and allows you to see it clearly again and to say, you know, yes, big food companies are tricking us and trapping us and capturing us in this, in this, 
basically in like a prison. I feel like it's a prison. For me personally, these foods were like a prison and having them in my life made me feel out of control, hopeless, ashamed, miserable and unhappy. For me personally, in my journey, having those addict, hyper, super addictive foods in my life caused only suffering. It wasn't something that was freedom to me. When people say, oh, you know, I want to be able to eat whatever I want. It's so restrictive the way you eat, Corinne. I think, well, this restriction gives me ultimate freedom. When I could access all the food, I was the ultimate prisoner. I couldn't control myself. Once I have a piece of a Mars bar, then I'd have to have a Snickers two hours later. Then I'd have to have chips and then I'd have to have a piece of cake. And the spiral would just get out of control until then I'd gain more and more and more and more weight. I reached over 100 kilograms. I was uncomfortable. I hated summer. I was depressed. I was ashamed of my body. I felt uncomfortable in my body. I couldn't do the physical exercise and the physical activities that I wanted to do. I was embarrassed to move, be seen moving my body in any way. That was prison to me. And that might not be prison to you. So it's not about fat shaming or shaming people who are overweight. But for me, that was the ultimate prison. And so Glenn's book was a really, like I've read so much on this topic because obviously I'm a a lifetime learner, a passionate self-educator, and I thrive on learning and researching. And I read this book for myself and for my clients because I knew it would have great, great tools that I could use with my one-on-one clients and that I could use for myself in this journey with food addiction. And there is so much gold in this interview. He just keeps giving just keeps giving and giving. And I'm going to have to have Glenn back on the show, honestly, because there is just so much left to, to discuss and we just didn't have time to cover everything today. So without further ado, if you haven't got the book, Never Binge Again, check out the website. It's free there, neverbingeagain.com and definitely read it and suspend your negative internal voice for a moment until you get through it because Glenn Hart is a psychologist but he is and he spent year, you know, years working as a psychologist and he's a published author but also he himself was a food addict and this is his journey this is the this never been again is basically a book that he wrote for himself on his own food addiction journey and binge eating journey and it is powerful stuff. So he walks the walk and talks the talk. You know, he has been there, been in an obese body, felt that nothing was working for him. And this is what he created as a result of finding a gap in the market, I guess, of how people with binge eating disorders and food addiction were being supported And it is a really powerful, simple, easy to digest, but powerful tool, I think, for many people when people allow themselves to move past that negative self-talk or that triggered response to the content of the book. It is a really, really powerful tool that everyone should try it if they've already tried everything or they're wanting to try something that they haven't tried before. It's a great book. So, yes. Here is Glenn. I could rave all day. (laughs) I hope you all enjoy the show. Hello and welcome to the show, Glenn Livingston. 
<laughs> I'm speechless. I didn't expect such an enthusiastic introduction. How are you? I'm happy to be here. How are you? I'm wonderful. I'm wonderful. And when you're, as I said in the introduction, when you're assistant reached out to me. I I read your book. I got downloaded the Kindle um, maybe six months ago. And I've been getting your emails ever since. And I love reading them. And I love, I love the ne- Never Binge Again book and principle. I think even though it's a bit confronting at the start when you first read it, but you do gently guide us into it and tell us to suspend our to suspend our resistance, I guess. Would that be the word that you're I'm looking for? It's written as an allegory, kind of a good versus evil type of a thing. And it's intended to challenge your perception of why you overeat and how you overeat. And I had to write it as a fairly aggressive piece in order to overcome what I perceive to be very strong cultural myths that are stopping everybody from eating well. So uh, I warn people up front that you're the part of you that really wants to keep overeating is going to hate this book and it might make you want to throw it down or put it away or write hate notes to me in the margins. Um, and that's okay. That, that's okay. You can, you can do that. It's set up like that. Yeah, I actually find it so refreshing because, in you know, I've as a health coach and as a person who has ha- been on my own food addiction journey, there's just no books that really. I haven't found any books that really talk about that voice in your head that wants to close the book immediately. That is completely challenged and triggered by what you're saying and by hearing about our own behavior and conditioning and how it impacts on our binge eating. Does that make sense? It does. Mm. It does. Yeah. I, I, you know, they say that if you're looking for a particular book and you can't find it, that maybe you're supposed to write it. And I, I think I was that guy. Yes. Yes. That's that. I, I think it's, it's such a wonderful topic. And so can you give us a bit of your background for people who just are wondering, like, how did you, how did you like, how did you decide to write a book on Never Binge Again? Well, if you were ever in the vicinity of Great Great Neck Long Island and you stopped at a supermarket in the 70s or 80s and you couldn't find inventory of some, um, you know, chips or Pop-Tarts or frozen pizzas or something like that, it, probably because I ate it. I, I, I prob- I'm making a joke about it, but it was actually a very disturbing and difficult journey for me. I um. At 17 or so, I discovered that if I worked out really hard for two and a half or three hours, I could eat anything I wanted to eat. I, I could have six, 7,000 calories a day. I'm 6'4", I'm and reasonably muscular. And I was thin. I was relatively thin, and I got away with it. I mean, not really because I was sleeping an awful lot, and I was um, spending an awful lot of time eating and recovering from the food an awful lot of time in the gym, so I could have been doing other more productive things, but I got away with it. When I'm 22 or 23, I was married. I was commuting several hours each direction. I was in graduate school. I had patients. I had all these responsibilities, and I found it really, really hard to work, work out that much. Maybe an hour or two a week, it was harder to do a lot more. And 
I couldn't stop eating. And my metabolism had slowed down, and so I just got fatter. Now, I say just. I would get fatter, and then I'd try something different, and I'd get thin. And then I'd get fatter again, and then I'd try something different again. But I'd always wind up a little fatter than I was. So things would, I'd lose a little weight, and then I'd gain more than when I started. And I'm a psychologist from a family of 17 psychologists. Wow. Oh, yeah. Just as an aside, the standing joke is if something breaks in the house, everybody knows how to ask it how it feels, but nobody knows how to fix it. (laughs) (laughs) I love that. But um, it's always very important to me to be a great psychologist. And this was disturbing me in particular because I'd be sitting with suicidal patients or in a class that I was really interested in or um, with people right after an affair, like really high risk situations where if you know anything about psychology, it's not really puzzle solving. People think you, you know, ask people questions about their past and then you connect it to the present and you point out where the jigsaw pieces fit. And then they say, Oh, thanks doc. I'll go do that. I'll go fix that. Now it's more like lending people your soul and you have to be more present than you've ever been anywhere. And it was very, very difficult for me to do that because I was always thinking about where the next pizza was coming from. Thank, thank God I, I never lost anybody. Um, and out of, I don't know, 250 couples I saw, I think only two got divorced. But, but um, at least while I was with them. But it really bothered me. So, so I went on a quest to solve it. And... Being a psychologist from my family, I assumed, turns out erroneously, that what was causing it was a hole in my heart. I figured that it's not what I'm eating, it's what's eating me. And if I could figure out what's eating me, then I would stop doing this. And so I went to psychologist after psychologist, and I knew many of the best people in Manhattan because of my family. And I went to eating disorder specialists, and I went to psychiatrists, and I took medication, and I went to Overeaters Anonymous, and spent a lot of years of my life in a very soulful journey. It's something I look back on fondly, even though I think they were wrong-headed about how to fix me. Um, but I look, I look back on fondly because I learned so much about myself, and they really shaped who I became in the end. But... Somewhere in my early 40s, I didn't write down the exact day, but there were three things that were conspiring to really flip the paradigm in my head. Because up until that point, I thought I had to love myself then and nurture my inner wounded child and heal the hole in my heart. After that, after these three things, I realized that I had to be more like an alpha wolf who was dealing with a challenger for leadership. It's almost like there was this bodily organ that was driving a craving, and I had to think it was another wolf that was challenging me and everything I wanted to be for leadership. And when an alpha wolf is challenged for leadership by another wolf in the pack, the alpha wolf is the top dog for those people who don't know. It doesn't say, oh my goodness, someone needs a hug. You know, Come here, let me, let me. It says, get back in line or I'll kill you. And it snarls and growls, and it's not a pretty sight. You don't want to challenge the alpha wolf unless you are ready to win. So the three things that happened were a study that I did. I had 40,000 people take a, um, take a survey online over the course of several years. And that was coming to fruition. Um, and I, I think I reanalyzed it in my early 40s, something. It, it all 
kind of made sense to me. I was, I've been doing a lot of consulting more for the big food industry, which I, I wish I never did. I feel like I was on the wrong side of things, but I did it. And, there, and then there was a um, alternative addiction philosophy that I was reading about by a guy named Jack Trimpey called Rational Recovery. And what they all three had in common was they pointed out that loving yourself then wasn't the right way. I'll start with the study. In the study, I found that people who struggle with chocolate, like me, because my binges always started with chocolate, they tended to be lonely or brokenhearted. People who struggled with crunchy, salty things like pretzels and chips, they tended to be stressed at work. And people who struggled with soft, chewy, starchy things like bread or bagels or pasta or even pizza, they tended to be stressed at home. And I thought, wow, this is really fascinating. Now, if That I just, is so fascinating. Well, that's what I thought. I thought this was going to be the answer. And I figured, okay, now you just got to know what people are struggling with and now you know what to fix in their life. Mm-hmm. As if that were really easy. <laughs> <laughs> um, and it was true. I, you know, I was in a bad marriage and I was kind of lonely and brokenhearted and... Um, but before I started working with clients, because I, I originally was a child and family therapist, by the way. I, I don't have kids and I never commuted, but I worked with um, hundreds of children and families. I, I, um, I, would, I would refer people out if they had eating problems because I felt like mine was too serious and I really couldn't handle it on my own like that. So I decided before I was going to work with clients about any of this that I was going to investigate more what it meant for myself. So I went to my mom who was also a therapist, and I said, Mom, and a chocoholic, by the way, and I said, look, I know I'm lonely and brokenhearted, but what's, what's set up this pattern? That had to be something that set up this pattern. What is it? And she gets this horrible look on her face. And she says, I'm so sorry. I said, Mom, <laughs> Mom, whatever it was, it was 40 years ago. It's okay. And she says, no, 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 I'm so sorry. It's, it's my fault. I said, what? She said, Honey, in 1965, when you were one year old, um, your, your dad was a captain in the army and they were talking about sending him to Vietnam. And I was just terrified. You know, there was, we're trying to have another kid and was I going to be a single mother with two small kids on my own? Was I going to be a, a Vietnam widow? I, I was terrified. And at the same time, your grandfather, my dad, had, had just gotten out of prison and he was guilty. And I'd adored and loved him my whole life. And he was my one salvation. And he was doing these things. And it's like my whole life fell apart. And we didn't have really good treatments for depression back then. And I was so depressed. And I I would sit and stare at the wall a lot of the time. And I didn't have the wherewithal to hold you and love you and hug you and feed you when you needed it. So I kept a refrigerator on the floor. And a big bottle of chocolate Bosco syrup in the refrigerator. And when you came running to me, if I didn't have the wherewithal to take care of you, I'd say, honey, go get your Bosco. And you'd go running over to the refrigerator and you'd take out the bottle and you'd open it up and you'd suck on it and go into a great big chocolate sugar coma. And oh, I, I want to hug you so, little you, so bad. Right. right oh, I know. My heart's broken for, and your mom, that is just Oh, poor things. Well, you know, if we were in a movie, I, Mom and I would have a great big hug and a great big cry, right? Yes, of course. 
and then we'd forgive each other mm. and we'd forgive ourselves mm. and I'd never have trouble with chocolate again. <laughs> in a movie you <laughs> absolutely um I, mama I did forgive my mom and it was a really good conversation to have and I learned a lot about her I learned a lot about myself I actually forgave myself having that understanding helped me to love myself more and forgive myself when I made mistakes but the chocolate binging got worse the reason it got worse was that I found out there was this voice in my head, and it went something like this. Hey, Glenn, do you know what you write? Our mama didn't love us enough, and she left a great big chocolate-sized hole in your heart. And until you can find the love of your life, you're going to have to go right on binging on chocolate. Let's go get some now. Yippee. So there's this voice of justification. There's this voice of justification, and... What I learned from that was that maybe emotional upset doesn't cause a binge. If you can think of the emotion as a fire, you can have a really big fire if you've got a really good fireplace and it can stay contained within the home and it can keep the home warm. It can be the center of hearth and home. It can be where memories are made and people talk and um, relaxation happens. It's a wonderful, wonderful area. But if the fireplace is broken, if something's poking holes in it, then even one ash can get out and burn down the house. And so what I realized was that there's this voice of justification that's poking holes in the fireplace. And maybe it would be a lot faster to recognize and disempower that voice of justification. You know, I had help from that book that I was reading, and um, this wasn't my idea 100%. But um, maybe it would be a lot faster to recognize and disempower that voice than to, um, than to you know, try to fix the emotion. Because that emotion would probably stay with me for a lifetime. Certainly no easy task to find the love of your life and fill that hole in your heart, right? So I could go on forever trying to fix it and keep on binging. Well, I did until I fixed it. And then maybe when I'm 80 years old and I'm finally content, then I won't binge anymore. <laughs> Or I could get rid of that voice. I could be the alpha dog and take control of that voice. So that, that's the route that I took. Uh, one of the things that helped me was that Jack Trimpey's book really pointed out that the, the target of addiction is really the reptilian brain, the lizard brain, the most primitive part of our neuroanatomy, which assesses things in the environment in a threefold way. It says, do I eat it? Do I mate with it? Or do I kill it? Eat, mate, or kill it. There's no love there. There's no concern for tribe or family or spirituality or music or art or um, contribution to society or long-term plans or health and weight loss goals, strategies. None of that. It's just eat, mate, or kill. It's, it's the neocortex, the more recently evolved part of the brain, and it, it doesn't matter if you think God put it there, it's still the superior part of the brain that is responsible for delaying the eat, mate, or kill impulse with consideration for what does this mean for those people that I love? What does this mean for the kind of person that I am and want to be? What does this mean for everything that I stand for and, and want to become? And so... I realized it was kind of a me versus this thing situation. 
And, um, and the last thing that happened was that I'd been doing a lot of consulting for big food. And it became abundantly clear to me that they're engineering hyper-palatable concentrations of starch and sugar and fat and oil to hit our bliss points without giving us enough nutrition to feel satisfied. And then they package it up in a way to make you think that it's healthy, make you believe that you need it to survive. I, I remember the VP of a major food bar manufacturer told me that their biggest profitable insight was when they took the vitamins out of the bar and they put the money into the packaging instead. So they made the packaging look really vibrant and colorful. And what's vibrant and colorful in nature? A vibrant diversity of color would be like a big salad uh, shiny green lettuce and purple cabbage and yellow carrots and blueberries. And it signals the availability of a diversity of nutrients, which is good that we have that mechanism in our brain to recognize that. It's one of the reasons that we love color in art, by the way. It's, it's where it comes from. But it, we're supposed to be directing it at produce. We're not supposed to be directing it at a big bag of chemicals. But but they manage to hijack our survival drive in this way. Um, there are a bunch of animal studies where electrodes are actually placed into the pleasure centers in the brain. And when you, when you wire those electrodes to a lever that the animal can press, they'll press that lever thousands of times per day to the exclusion of basically everything else including especially their survival needs. They could be starving. You take a starving rat and it will ignore its food almost until it dies. I think actually until it dies. I think they stopped the experiment before What it died. was the payoff apart from pressing the lever in that, in that experiment? Nothing. The stimulation of the pleasure center. The electrical stimulation of oh, the... Oh, okay. Sorry. I, okay. I'm, I'm, I'm getting you now. So they put the electrodes in the pleasure center of their brain and when they press the lever, they get that pleasure hit. And so then they're just like, I want this pleasure more than I want to eat or mate or do anything. Yes. Yes. Okay. Yes. A nursing mother rat would abandon her pups. Oh. They, they, they would crawl over painful electrical grids. That, that's how powerful short-circuiting the pleasure centers in ways that nature didn't intend can mm. be. And this is what those foods do to us, those high-processed foods. I, I think it's kind of like chemical electrodes. I don't have proof of that. But I mean, just look at the way that people act these days. Everybody knows that if you want to lose weight, you have to eat more fruit and vegetables. If you want to feel better, you got to eat more fruit and vegetables. Every major organization that studies these things, they recommend that. There might be different arguments about you know, what macronutrient balance you should have or whatever, but everybody says... You need, you need more natural produce. You, but people say they don't like it, right? Because their survival drive has been stolen. It's, it's been hijacked by these bags and boxes and containers. And there's a process of down-regulation of the nervous system. Um, do you ever sleep under, underneath the subway? Do you ever have an apartment underneath the subway or nearby to a really loud train? Mm, I had a, a really loud road, like a freeway. Is that the uh -huh. same? Yeah. Did you have trouble sleeping the first week or two and then you got used to it? Yes. What happened was that your, your brain down-regulated the response to the freeway. It was repeatedly presented with a supersized stimulus. 
And as a consequence, it said the stimulus is not quite as important anymore. I'm going to downregulate it. Uh, when I used to sleep underneath the subway in graduate school, same thing happened. I couldn't sleep at all the first week. And then I was surprised that I didn't even hear it. Um, that's called downregulation, and it happens with taste also. If you have a chocolate bar every day or a candy bar every day, at the end of a month or so, maybe two months, your pleasure system, your taste buds and the dopaminergic system of, um, of pleasure in your brain, will have downregulated response to sugar. So the natural sugars in fruits and vegetables, and you won't think an apple tastes nearly as sweet anymore. Mm. This is fascinating because so many of us, well, people I've talked to about, you know, when, when I was at my height of junk, well, processed food, oils, fats, sugars, eating, you know, I wouldn't notice so many things. Like I wouldn't notice how like chocolate, the stimulate, the stimulants in like cacao stimulated me. I wouldn't notice how sugar stimulated me. I wouldn't notice so many things. And so I'm, I'm fascinated by what you're saying because it wasn't until I took them away and some of our friends would say, oh, now that you eat so clean, you're kind of becoming – well, they would say – like one of my friends was like, I'd rather eat everything and nothing affect me. Whereas when I eat, when you eat stuff now, Corinne, everything upsets you. <laughs> and I, <laughs> and I, and I, I, it's true. And I was thinking, wow, why is that? That now when I eat cacao, I get anxious and this horrible heart racy feeling. When, when I ate buckets of it and chocolate and all kinds of things when I was obese and really unwell, I just felt like, fine homeostasis it was it was it was all fine everything but now when i eat certain things or certain sweets i it all is too much for me and yeah so my friends would say arguing why would you want to live that way when you can't eat anything without getting upset by it but it's because like you say that i'm not down regulating stuff anymore it's all presenting as it is is that is that is that is that, is that right what i'm getting that right or am i going yeah, yes I, I think there's another element to that i i think that so, so first of all our society is addicted to stimulation um, look at the number of frames per second that change scenes in you know situation comedies and movies and uh, how many explosions and naked women and car chases are there um in the in the coming attractions where we're just addicted to constant stimulation and we think that's normal and, and so we experience the world as it is, as if it were incredibly boring. Um, so that, that's part of it. I, I think the other part of what you're describing, and this, this is a little bit out of my field of expertise. I'm so sorry. But I, <laughs> that, that, that's okay. Because I, I, I read a lot about it. I just don't want people to think I'm a medical doctor or, or a dietitian or something. But I think that when we are younger, that our body has the ability to process a lot more toxin and a lot more excess stimulation. So I know, for example, that there is a limited lifespan of the cells in the pancreas that are responsible for insulin regulation. And so when I was a kid, I could eat six Pop-Tarts in a sitting, no problem. If I, if I did that now, you know, you'd have to call an ambulance. My, my, my body, you know, my pancreas are probably wore it out and um, I'm you know, 54 years old. I can't believe I'm 54 years old. I, I used to have a forehead. Now I have a five head. I forgot to <laughs> <made> that joke. <laughs> but um, th there's, and your body, I believe that it isolates the toxins in like cysts and little tumors, and it can only do so much of that. And then at some point it can't. And so these people that say, well, they can eat everything, they're probably shortening their lifespan and setting them, themselves up for 
what we consider to be average and normal, which is, you know, incredible discomfort and cardiovascular disease and diabetes and cancer and all, all sorts of abnormalities in the second half of their life. And so I'm, I'm interested in living, you know, I, I want to be climbing mountains when I'm 90. And so I'd, I'd rather do it your way. You're a man um, of my own heart. Yeah. I agree. I want to be vital and fit in my 90s and not suffering from a 20-year chronic disease that's just wasting me away. Yeah. Yeah. So I forgot mm. how we got there, Corinne. I know. And I'm so – my apologies. You were talking about the lowering our threshold for – Oh, Okay for sugar and sweeteners? Well, I, I want you to know the good news is that the process reverses a lot quicker than you think. So most people think, for example, and I'm not saying that it, you know, my, my book doesn't require people to give up any particular food or to eat any particular diet. I, I personally eat whole foods plant-based, but you don't have to. Um, but if you have down-regulated so much that you feel like you just hate fruit and vegetables, and you might even feel like you need sugar or chocolate just to feel normal, like you don't feel normal until you've had or you don't feel normal until you've had your coffee. Well, the body is incredibly resilient and miraculous in its ability to bounce back. And if you stop having chocolate or you dramatically reduce it, then your taste buds will regenerate. I think it's, the research says, about six to eight weeks. And before you know it, you'll be taking pleasure out of apples and lettuce again. You don't, you don't have to believe me. You just have to try it. You probably shouldn't believe me right now. <laughs> but I, I can tell you that over the course of the years, and I'll, I'll tell you how I finally recovered, how I finally figured it out that I could actually eat this way. Please do. Please do. You all want to hear. But, but um, you're, you're going to be frightened that you're going to be tortured forever if you give up X, Y, or Z. Like, how can you possibly live without that? But, but it's just not true. Before you know it, you'll be tasting the subtle differences between gala apples and envy apples and delicious apples or, you know, romaine lettuce and red leaf lettuce. And, um, and you, won't, you won't believe how interesting and stimulating that is in and of itself. But the stimulation is really relative. If you, um, you know, if you remove the hypersized stimulus from your from your life, then your ability to appreciate what nature has to offer is incredible. If you take away the sugar and the flour and the alcohol and the caffeine and all the stimulants, what what's left is what nature has to offer, and you start enjoying that even more than you ever did the bags and boxes and containers. Um, you, you take away pornography and you can appreciate natural beauty again. It's it's um, You can go across the different spectrums, but um, but there's good news also is what I'm saying. So even though the forces are aligned against us. There are billions of dollars going into making these food-like substances and billions more going into advertising them. And I think the addiction treatment industry has it wrong. They tell you that you can't quit even if you want to, but that's not what the evidence says. Um, but, but even though all that's the case, even though the forces are aligned against you, I did discover that with a very simple technique for focus and clarity – now, it's a little embarrassing. This is an embarrassing part of my journey, and I never intended to publish it. Um, you, you can fix this. You can fix this, and you might be a lot closer to freedom than you think. Here's what I did. 
I'm always hesitant. I'm, I'm all up. ears. You, this, is, this is a safe pe- place, Glenn. <laughs> this is a safe <laughs> I have well, shared, if you have listened to any of this, we have shared about our bowel movements, our periods, our food addictions, our binges, our everything on this podcast. So if anyone's listening and you're new, this is a safe space. <laughs> and we're all humans and we've all been everywhere and tried all that, you know, we've all... It's a messy human life, so go right ahead, Glenn. I'll be sure to talk about pee and poop in the process. <laughs> good, good, good. <laughs> so here's what I did, and I this was just for myself, remember. I wasn't intending to publish it. I decided that my lizard brain, I was going to call that my pig, and I was going to call the things that it squeals for pig slop. In order to, to distinguish pig slop from non-pig slop from healthy food, I decided to draw really clear lines in language. So, for example, I would say, I'll only ever have chocolate on the last Saturday, Sunday, and Monday of the calendar month. That's a, that's a clearer way to say that I'll avoid it 90% of the time. And eventually, I gravitated towards never having chocolate again at all because I found it just works a lot better for me. But, but initially, I was with more of a conditional rule, and I said that any voice in my head that suggested that I would have chocolate on anything other than the last Saturday, Sunday, and Monday of the calendar month was going to be pig squeal. If I heard that voice, I'd say, I don't want that. My pig does. I don't eat pig slop, and I don't let farm animals tell me what to do. <laughs> I really love this, uh, and I love it because you're right. You know, when we when we eat those, you know, it's it's a great – I found it funny way. Like, I found it saying that to myself and after I read your book, saying that to myself, it 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 almost made it lighter for me going through that because it isn't light when you have food cravings and you're a food addict. It's, it's heavy and hard and it feels like you're holding on for dear life trying to avoid those cravings and to not listen to them. But calling them pig squeal, I found it made me laugh and, and I could get through it in a more lighthearted way, if that makes sense. A lot of people tell me that. Mm. A lot of people tell me that, yeah. Mm. yeah. So, sorry, keep going. Well, so I proceeded to keep a journal for eight years, and it wasn't an immediate cure. I, it wasn't a miracle. Well, what, what was a miracle was I immediately started to realize that I wasn't powerless. It would wake me up and give me those extra microseconds at the moment of impulse to make the right decision or at least to know that I had a decision to make. And I no longer felt like there was this mysterious force inside me that I couldn't control. I knew that I had really strong cravings, but they um, they were urges that could be dismissed. I didn't have to pay attention to them. I was superior to them. It wasn't a signal that I had to dig deeper into my own psychology. It was this organ, this bodily organ inside of me that I was annoyed with, kind of like... Um, I promised I was going to talk about pee and poop. So kind of like my bladder, when my bladder really has to go to the bathroom, but I'm in this conference meeting and I have to wait an hour, I wait an hour. I don't just, you know, drop, chow, and pee, right? I, I have to, it's a very strong biological urge. It presses for expression, but I have to express it in a particular way at a particular time. And I live comfortably or sometimes uncomfortably with that urge but I have trained myself to go to the bathroom to do it as opposed to doing it wherever I feel like it. The same thing with, um, you know, you don't just 
run up and kiss attractive people in the street, right? You, you, there you are laws about to, that. But you don't. <laughs> yeah, right. And our, our ovaries and our testicles are strong biological organs that um, drive a very powerful impulse to, to behavior, but we've learned to regulate them or we'll get in a lot of trouble, right? So, so that's the way that I started to think about it. And I found I could live more comfortably with the urge once that happened because there are times when I really, really have to pee. I mean, I've been stuck on the expressway for, for, for hours and uh, I can actually only think of one time that I didn't make it. But, <laughs> 99.9999% of the time, yeah. it doesn't matter. Yeah. I think this is, uh, like, I, I don't recall reading that part of the book because, you know, I read late at night and I'm very tired. So, but, but this to me is groundbreaking way of thinking and I because, yeah, like we do have that discomfort, like it's terrible discomfort when you're like busting and you're on a long drive and there's no toilet or public, you know, anything, anywhere to go for another 10 minutes or 10 Ks or 20 Ks and you're just desperate. And that same with, you know, when you, you know, you're desperate to see your partner or your boyfriend when you're first dating and those, when you're growing up and you really want to kiss them or be with them, and but you can't, so you just have to, you're at school or at work and you can't see that person and you're just thinking about them all day, but you can't just kiss someone to fill the time <laughs> between <laughs> when you can see that person that you're, that you're in love with. And, and food is another biological urge. And I love thinking that, you know, I, I think it's very, very empowering to think of it like that, to think, okay, well, I can not wet my pants. Like most of the time I can control it and wait till I get to a toilet and I can control my sexual, sensual urges until I'm with a consenting, a consenting partner. And then if I can do those two things, then it makes complete sense to take the next step and say, I can do that with my chocolate craving. Yeah, exactly. That's really, really powerful. Thank you so much for sharing that. You're welcome. You're welcome. So then, it, then as the time went by and I'd experiment with different rules because, uh, you know, I would then before I knew it, I was OK with chocolate. But my my pig was getting me to have more sugar and then it was getting me to have more more like pizza. And so I, I had to put together a whole plan, a whole set of rules that really regulated food in what I believe was a healthy way. I kept a journal and I, I learned many more things about how this all worked. And I started to see that there were problems in the way that our culture thinks about things. Um, so for example, our culture will tell you to strive for progress and not perfection and to use guidelines instead of rules. Um, so they'll say, well, Glenn, really what you're doing is you're eating chocolate 10% of the time and avoiding it 90% of the time. And isn't that just a simpler thing to strive for? Do you have to have these hard and fast rules? And do you have to have a pig inside you? And do you have to aggressively separate your thoughts like this? And see, that's that's wrong-headed. First of all, because the research on willpower says that it's horrifically fatigued by decision making. There's more, there's a little controversy in later research, but basically, there are only so many good decisions you can make over the course of a day. And if you, if your rule is or your guideline is that I 
eat well 90% of the time, but I indulge 10% of the time, or chocolate 90, 10% of the time, and I indulge 10% of the time. Every time you're in front of a chocolate bar at Starbucks, you've got to make another decision. And this is why people do really well until you know the, the end of the day, and then they screw up. Um, this is also why a stressful day at work makes it harder to eat well, because decision-making separate and apart from food still fatigues your willpower. So answering an email and deciding, is it spam? Is it something you delegate or defer or reply to? Or um, I don't know what else you can do with it, but, but you have to, you're going to make all these email decisions. Um, that, that takes a little bit of willpower, burns a little bit of glucose in your brain and makes it harder for you to, um, to make good decisions. But if I say, I only ever eat chocolate the last Saturday, Sunday, and Monday of the calendar month, then all of my chocolate decisions have been made all month long. You see what I'm saying? Yes. And I love what you're saying because I have so many people that I work with in my groups that, I, that they get to the end of the day and I have never known quite what to say when they have that after dinner, late night binge on junk food, or not, not even a binge, but just they end up making choices to eat unhealthy food after tea. And then you, you, I'm always thinking, well, they're tired and they've got kids or they're working all day. And But what you say makes so much sense because they are the decision-making is exhausting all day. They're deciding between so many different things in their life, in their families, in their careers, in everything. And by the end of the day, deciding that decision about food is they don't have the capacity to make a good decision in that moment because they're worn out from the whole day of decision-making. Is that what you're saying? Yeah. A couple of little tricks with that, by the way, is that even adding two five-minute breaks during the course of the day can help a little bit to restore. So if you can get, get away from people, places, and things for, for, um, for five minutes twice a day, even if you have to walk into the bathroom and close the door, and uh, you could meditate or you could just sit and think or you could you know, walk outside and take a few breaths and you don't answer the phone, you don't answer your email, um, you're, you're on dark for those five minutes, your brain can restore a little bit. That, that can help making your food decisions in the morning, planning it all, it all out, you know, putting a little Tupperware together and having it sitting for you at home when you leave in the morning so that you know when you get home, your dinner's just right there for you. That, that can help. And um, you know, engaging in other types of self-care can, can help. So making sure you keep your blood sugar up during the course of the day. And usually the solution to nighttime eating are things you do during the day, not things you do at night. I love that. Thank you so much. That is, I'm, I'm sure everyone listening is taking notes like I was just taking notes just then because I think that they're such great doable things, you know. I've, I'm, meal, I'm a fan of meal planning and self-care, but that two-minute breaks, two, five, two times five-minute breaks, we often don't take them. We feel like we have to just trudge on <laughs> until we're worn down to the bone at the end of the day without getting up. That's only five minutes, and it makes such a diff. For it to make such a difference is incredible. There's something else that really helps with all of this, and is that if you put it in the perspective, see, if I ask people, "Could you never eat chocolate again?" They'll say, "I could never do that. That's really scary." Um, and I'll tell you a couple of things that'll make it easier. But the biggest things that makes it easier is if, if you reframe it and you say, well, could you become the kind of person who never eats chocolate? And they go, oh, wow, maybe I could do that. So wh why is that? Why is that it's less scary to become a different kind of person than to commit to 
never having chocolate again. Why is that? That's an, it's a really great reframe, but I'd love to hear why, why that is. Well, it's because without knowing it, we're unconsciously building character all the time. We all live by a set of unwritten rules. So if you go into a diner and there's a $20 bill on the table because the waitress didn't see her tip, there's no video camera, there's nobody up front, nobody would see you take it, and she says, I'll be right back, just have to get the menus. Would you take it? I wouldn't. (laughs) How come? Because I would feel bad. Why? Because it's not the right thing to do. I, I would believe it wasn't the right thing to do. Because you're not a thief. Mm. It doesn't belong to me? Yeah. And you're not that kind of person? No. She worked hard for her money, mm. and you've got an unwritten rule that you never steal. Yes. You never take someone else's, someone else's money that worked hard for it, right? Yeah. Yes, I do. So as a matter of character, here's a way that you could indulge and enhance your well-being, your pleasure, um, without any consequences whatsoever. But it doesn't take willpower to resist that because you're not that kind of person. You, you have a character statement inside that defines the kind of person you are, and you're not the kind of person who would do that from her. That you can do that with food. Character trumps willpower is what I'm trying to say. Yes, wow. Character trumps willpower. So you want to ask yourself, what kind of person do I want to be around this trigger food or behavior? And I, I recommend everybody think about their single most difficult trigger food or behavior and come up with one rule. That's the best way to start. So for some people, it's, a, it's just a rule that supports mindfulness, like I'll never eat in front of the TV again, or I'll always put my fork down between bites. For other people, it's a, it's a rule that says something they always will do, like I'll always have five servings of fruit and vegetables every day, or I will always start my day with two pure glasses of spring water, or I will always meditate for five minutes before I get out of bed. Whatever it is, you can create a character statement about the kind of person you want to be, because character is the sum total of our habits, and our habits are defined by unwritten rules. So if you describe how you would like to behave in the face of a particular impulse, habitually, then you're actually building character. That's what yes. you're doing. I love that so much. I just think that there's so many people who I know who are are driven by being good people, but also well, in, in, in good in quotation marks, whatever their version of that is, but are also people who don't feel like they have control around certain foods. And so framing it this way, I think, will help those people who really want to work on self-betterment and self-improvement. It will help those people people so much to say, you know, well, if I just have to make one rule that's about my character, it's so much easier to do than saying I'm not going to have chocolate. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. And it's more purposeful. It feels more purposeful. The other thing, there are two other things you can do to make this a lot easier. A lot of people are frightened that if they say never, like I will never have chocolate other than the last three days of the calendar month again. They're frightened that if they make a mistake, then they're going to have to beat themselves up interminably and you know, they can't change the rule in any way. 
And the way I'm using never here is different than that. I'm using never in the same way that you would use it with a two-year-old that had to cross the street with you. And you would say, little Sarah, you can't ever, 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 never cross the street without holding my hand. Ever, ever, ever. You don't say, hey, when you're a big girl, I'm going to teach you to look both ways and do it. Because she doesn't have the maturity to entertain those images without the possibility of darting into the street. And that's too dangerous. It's the same with our pigs. Our reptilian brains don't have the maturity, especially given the power of these um, substances that are, that are targeted at our brain. They don't have the maturity to do that. So we present our food rules to our pigs as if they are set in stone to our reptilian brain, but we can change them whenever we want to. I just recommend that you write down exactly why you want to change. You write down exactly what you're going to change, what are the boundaries of the change. Like, Don't leave any ambiguity whatsoever. And then wait 24 hours before you allow that to take effect. That way your pig can't do it impulsively. So you don't have to be frightened about the word never again. This is why my book is called Never Binge Again, by the way, because of the odd way in which we use the word never. And then the last piece is that guilt serves a healthy function when it's used appropriately. And you use it in the same way that you would use the pain that you feel when you touch a hot stove. So you don't, you don't want to feel no pain if you touch a hot stove because you won't know where it is and you might put your whole hand down on it, right? You also don't want to say, oh my God, I'm a pathetic hot stove toucher. I might as well just you know, rest my whole arm on the, right? You, you, you don't want to get carried away with it. You want yeah. it to get your attention mm-hmm. so that you can make a plan so it doesn't happen again. That, that's the purpose of that pain. Guilt and shame are the psychological correlates of touching a hot stove. If you make a mistake, you want to feel guilty for a minute. This was a serious rule that you made. You had a um, very solemn oath to to do this. You were building it as a part of your character, and you missed. So it's good to know that you missed, but only so that you can figure out what went wrong. Usually it has something to do with not taking good enough care of yourself during the time before then, or there was a squeal that the pig ran at you that, you know, gee, maybe it doesn't matter, we can start tomorrow, or... um, Chocolate comes from a cocoa bean, which grows on a plant, and therefore it's a vegetable. What, 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 whatever it is, there was something that um, there was something that that you missed, and so you pay attention to it, you make corrections, and then you get up and you aim at the bullseye again, and you let it go. It turns out that the the perseveration on the guilt, that negative voice that takes hold and won't go away, is binge motivated in and of itself. It's the pig trying to get you to feel too weak to resume your character commitment, too weak to resist the next binge. If you refuse to keep yelling at yourself, it'll be very difficult for you to continue overeating. It's, it's, I learned that from Carol Munter. It's a very, very hard. It's a part and parcel of what fuels the binge is the uh, pig yelling at you and keeping your self-esteem low so you can't make the character commitment. Okay, so. that that makes so much sense, and I really I've been I'm retaking notes as you've been talking because it's all 
really wonderful information. And I think it transfers every you know transfers across so many areas of our life you know when we get bogged down in that guilt and shame it's almost paralyzing for us and we don't grow we just get stuck repeating these kind of toxic behaviors that kept us stuck in the first place yes yes Mm. so so the mantra i give people is to commit with perfection and forgive with dignity i love that that is beautiful thank you I'm writing Thanks. it down. <laughs> I just think it's really nice. Forgive with dignity. And that is, that is, I think that that is a statement in itself that can really help and save and heal so many wounded people who have been on this binge eating, weight loss, fad diet cycle forever you know there's you know men and women who've been doing this you know their whole entire lives doing atkins calorie restriction keto whatever yo-yoing up and down and feeling after a while you do get to that point where it's a bit like when you were talking about the decision making fatigue exhaustion after a while you just sit on your hands and say look i've tried everything i'm not trying anymore i'm just gonna resolve to be overweight, uncomfortable, sick and live with chronic disease because it's just too hard and I have proven to myself that I'm incapable of having the wherewithal and the willpower to commit to a healthy eating program that's going to be sustainable for me. And saying that commit with perfection and forgive with dignity, it strips away all of that guilt and allows you to actually just self to reflect and move forward more openly and positively and with more self-love. That's the idea. I love it so much. Now, Glenn, I know you're in a hurry and we haven't covered anything, so I have to have you back on the show. (laughs) Let's do it. I've got so much more. But I I wanted you to talk to everyone about where they can find you, how they can learn more about your work and where they can – you know, follow you, all those things so that, you know, obviously they can go check you out now because I'm sure that they all want to after hearing what you've had to say today. You can go to neverbingeagain.com. It's all at neverbingeagain.com. And click on the big red button and sign up for the reader bonuses. There, there are a lot of things you'll get there, but what you'll get first and foremost, these are all free, is a copy of the book in Kindle Nook or PDF format, no cost. Um, the, the, the physical copies, are there's a cost. That it's the same thing with the Audible, but the Kindle Nook and PDF are for free. Then I have created a set of food plan starter templates for you. So regardless of your dietary philosophy, whether you're whole foods plant-based like um, Corinne and I or you're ketogenic or low-carb or point counters or calorie counters, whatever you are, there is a template to get you started. And I I won't take responsibility for what you eat because I'm not a dietitian or nutritionist or medical doctor, but um, we can get you started and you can revise it for your own benefit with your own knowledge. And I, 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 I'm going to interrupt for one second. Everyone who's listening, I have read Never Binge Again and I have created my own plan from that. But when I was reading it, I sat down and did and did it. And I love the fact that you're, what did you call it? It's a, it's a diet, uh, my, my word. It's, it's a, the word's gone from me because I'm a Di- bit, Diet agnostic. Diet agnostic. Sorry, I love that because it is it does give you the freedom to take the take control yourself and to plan your future way of eating with all the things that you know work for you. So it's wonderful. I, I couldn't. I can't stress enough how great, how much I enjoyed it and how empowering I found it to make my own plan. Thanks. Mm, sorry. The, keep the going. Third, the, 
the third thing you'll get for free, which is really important, there's a whole bunch of other things, but the third thing is a set of recorded coaching sessions. The reason I wanted to make these available for free so people could hear it is because I know a lot of you are thinking, who is this weird psychologist that Corinne got on that has a pig inside him? That, this, this sounds really harsh and crazy, and it does sound like that in the abstract, but if you hear the implementation of it and you can see people going from feeling despairing and hopeless and powerless to feeling enthusiastic and hopeful and excited in just one session, you'll understand the power of what we've unearthed here. It's neverbingeagain.com. Click the big red button. There are a bunch of other free resources like the podcast and the forum and stuff um, you'll get when you do that. So neverbingeagain.com. Beautiful. Thank you so much. And I will say that on that note about the squealing pig is that I think in the book you do say you can make it whatever you want. You know, you could make it a squealing guinea pig or a squealing rabbit or whatever works for you as long as you've got a thing that you're that you're not listening to. Did you did you did I make that up or did you mention that? No, you didn't make that up. You don't you don't have to call you don't have to call it a pig. If a pig offends you, you can call it a a squealing hamster. (laughs) I I wouldn't do that though. You wouldn't do that. Because hamster is a cute thing you want to nurture. That's and true. Remember, this is a sociopathic I love pigs so brain. much. That's my problem. <laughs> I, I love pigs also. And I, I, I distinguish between pigs with a big P, and that's in um, the mental construct in the book, and pigs with a little P. I, I'm a vegan. I, 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 I believe that pigs really need our help in the world. And it's unfortunate that that's the term that I chose. I wasn't a vegan no, when I wrote the no, book. No, no, no. I... I, 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 it doesn't bother me, but I just, I just was thinking if it bothers some other people, then they can, you know. You, you might want to call, you might want to call it a food demon or a yes. food monster oh, or a junkyard yes. dog. That's right. Not, not cute. Not, it can't be adorable to you. you this, it, this is not your inner wounded child. You might have an inner wounded child, but this is not it. This is a bodily organ that's caused all sorts of trouble for you in your life. And you're going to lock it in a cage and make it miserable. Yes. Okay. It's not. A, it's not you. It's an it's not enemy. Part of, of human you. identity. It's an enemy. Yes. No, no more than your bladder is you, or your ovaries, or your testicles are you. Okay. I love that. I, I will think about that all the time. That bladder, testicles, ovaries, and <laughs> and my inner demon. Did, did I talk about enough pee and food today? Well, it's not quite enough. <laughs> no, no, no. It is. It's fine. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Thank you so much, Glenn. Thank you, everyone, for listening. And, Glenn, I, look f- I can't wait to have you back on the show to talk about yeah, this you more. Yeah, I'd love to do it again. Absolutely. I'll, I'll have you on my show, too. Yes, I would love to come on your show. All right. See you later, Glenn. Thank you so much, Glenn, for coming on the show. Thank you all so much for listening. Definitely go check out neverbingeagain.com. Get the book. Read the book. And start your own, creating your own food plan. Start thinking about, you know, writing down what Glenn said about writing down your, exactly why you want to change, writing down exactly why you want to change and then what you want to change and then waiting for 24 hours and feeling into what you've written. I think that's powerful stuff. And I really, 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 one of my, there's so many key takeaways, but I loved the most, and I'm going to end this episode on it, is when he said, commit with perfection and forgive with dignity. I just think that that would solve so many problems. I think it's just such a beautiful way of saying, you know, we we all know not to steal, like Glenn says. We all, we, we, our characters, 
our character tells us not to steal, not to kill, you know, not to pee our pants in our car on the way. If we can avoid it, if we can avoid it, if you can't avoid it, no guilt and no shame. Forgive with dignity for that too because we've all <laughs> had accidents. But, I mean, we all know hold on. If you can hold on, hold on. And we all know, you know, to be with in our relationships that we have to wait until we receive consent. Well, most of us know to, to, to receive consent. We can't just go out and make out with everyone on our based on our impulses and our urges. And cravings for food and junk food are no different to those urges, those biological urges and impulses to, I need to go to the toilet, I'm going to have to go right now. We know we can hold on. Lots of us can. Not, if you can't, again, forgive with dignity because... That everyone's made, everyone's made mistakes. But I mean, this is a wonderful, wonderful thing to say to yourself. I think is that you need to commit to whatever diet works for you. Obviously, this podcast is about whole food, plant, low fat, whole food, plant based diets, and it works tremendously, as we've seen on all eighty one episodes. But forgiving with dignity is beautiful because it allows you to reflect, to process. And to move forward, make that connection, get up and aim for the bullseye again, as Glenn says. But when we just wallow in that guilt and shame about the food we've just eaten or the mistakes that we think we've made, we don't grow and move forward. We don't get up and we don't try again. So forgiving with dignity allows us to go, okay, this thing's happened. I've done, I've eaten whatever it is. Let's pay attention to why how we can avoid it again and make the correction and get up and aim for the bullseye again. I love that so much. Thank you so much, Glenn, and everyone. Go check out neverbingeagain.com. And I can't wait to have Glenn back on the show and I can't wait to see you all next week. Thank you so much for listening. Bye.